Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook. If you would like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. Thanks for listening and enjoy. So uh, regardless, we're going to have a great reading tonight. We have some uh, terrific poets here. Uh, the way it'll work is that we'll begin with Rick Smith and then Gerald Lachlan. Um, the gentlemen are much much taller than I am, so I'm already preparing to do that. So uh, Rick Smith is a clinical psychologist in Rancho Cucamonga. I haven't said Rancho Cucamonga in a long, long time. I just love saying that, right? Something about saying Rancho Cucamonga, um, where he specializes in brain damage and domestic violence, and that shows with my brain needs help. Um, he has been published widely in anthologies and in small press publications such as New Letters, On the Bus, Blue Line, Hanging Loose, Pinion, Eclipse, Paper Street, Lummox Journal, Rattle, Rhino, and Main Street. Right. He's been published a lot of places. He has uh, three books, including his latest title, Hard Landing. Please welcome Rick Smith. Thank you. Yeah, Rain Dog got stuck in Long Beach. And uh, so we have no book. He's the publisher, too. I mean, he's not just a poet. You can't just be just a poet. Um, but I, luckily, I brought the book I'm going to read from. Luckily, I did not wait till he got here. Let me use one of those books and do my reading. It looks like this. And uh, it's really it's the legacy and the mythology of the Wren. And um, and it's a complicated bunch of stuff. That is, the wren, this sort of forgettable little bird that you don't even probably know when you see it, um, actually is very rich in mythology, very rich culturally, especially in Europe. Um, back in Aesop's time, um, he wrote about this contest that the birds had to see who's going to be the king of the birds. And the wren uh, stowed away on the eagle, which was the favorite, because the wren is not notably a short distant flyer. Knew he couldn't win, didn't like the idea of it anyway, but uh, stowed away. And then when the wren ran out of gas, took off and, and won the damn thing. So it was kind of, it brings up a kind of a moral dilemma. And uh, different continents have responded to this dilemma in different ways. Uh, in Asia and in North America, eagle is the king. But in Europe, you might not have known this, the wren is actually the king. And if you look up the language, the diminutive of the word for king in many European languages is actually the word for wren. Like in French, the word for king is R-O-I. And in um, the word for wren is roitelet, which is the, just the diminutive. Same in Spanish, some of the Scandinavian languages as well. Um, but before I get into the, the hard landing, because we're in Los Feliz and I used to live around here, I wanted to uh, sort of dedicate a poem to the neighborhood since I'm from Cucamonga. And it's called At Santa Monica and Western. I don't know if you guys remember this, but there was a guy that used to hang out there and pretend to be pitching uh, warm-up baseball 
And if you've got a long red light there, you could check him out at some length. He's obviously an outpatient from someplace. You've been touched up and your game's gone south. Now you're just a battered pitcher in black relief against the sun-blanched corner at Santa Monica and Western. A long red light compels us to watch your wind up. You pull at your cap, pound your glove, check the runners, shake off signs, and whisper the count with lips that never stop moving. You arm wrestle with the wind, quite delirious with your stuff, and you wait for the medicine to work, just like the rest of us. Now, uh, I do want to read you, the, the Aesop's fable on this contest seems to have been lost. And so, uh, Jane Goodall wrote a little version of it for kids, and maybe in this store someplace, but it has a happy ending because it's for kids. It doesn't really address the moral dilemma and at the end of her book. The Wren kind of admits that he was just taking a ride, kind of just out day tripping, and uh, there's no real dilemma about who's the king. But I didn't think that was, that was interesting enough. It's great for a kid. So I'm going to read you my version of the Aesop's fable. Back in 86 AD, I think it was about that time as people counted. For me, it's just a distant blue. Sometimes these stories are passed down and they replace actual memory. It was decided back then each flock would send their best to touch the sky with the highest flyer crowned. I wasn't around when they dreamed this up. I would have been against it. But that's wind under a branch. I want to tempt memory, the memory of that flight, because I'm not a liar, but I'm willing to lie. And somewhere in that memory is what I've lost and what I was. When I imagined trying to outdo the eagle or the hawk, I thought, why bother? I'll just be smeared and forgotten in the lower atmospheres, wheezing and feeling my breast catch fire. Okay, let's start from the beginning. I had a dream that I was king. Is that really a crime? No, it's not. But between me and that dream was the eagle and his crowd. Can you really blame me? If you read the fine print, it says, the one who reaches the highest point. So what if I let the eagle do all the work? She never really knew I was there, a stowaway in thinning air. I took off fresh at 12,000 feet and picked up another 10 yards. The real miracle is how I ever got back down. It's freezing up there and I never could catch the wind like that raptorial clan. It's far higher than I've ever been. I don't have that kind of structure. The free fall nearly narked me out. My wings and eyes didn't want to work. I always thought it was supposed to be warm up there close to the sun and all. But it's the opposite. I started thawing out at 600 feet and wobbled in from there. I felt blessed to be back on the limb of a juniper, 30 feet up. But there was more than a murmur of discontent from the assembled. And I had to use my craft to get out of there in one piece. Keep moving, that's something I learned on the desert floor. I kept thinking, this dream feels pretty real. And it turned out it was. In the dream, I became king. But not in every sector. It actually started a riot. I became a target over here, died a figurehead over there. I was minted and thrived, then hunted and despised. 
Don't worry though, I'm over it. I made my mark, at least in Europe. In Asia, they deconstructed me. In North America, I'm invisible. The eagle has those territories mesmerized. No one talks about South America much. Terra incognita. Africa, the same. Titles don't mean a thing there besides the meat-eating vegetation, the green mamba watching for a careless landing, the uncompromising blackness and movement of night make those places unthinkable. But in Europe, I'm everywhere, on stamps and coins, and scored deep into the very music of the language. The dream is the best way to retrieve something buried in tissue, buried in prehistory. There's a distance and still there's a now there. These things, things past, things yet to pass, things elusive but destined to be, beginnings seeking the now. I took a breath, I aimed high, I pushed off and marked a spot. For better or for worse, I held the note long and rich as I could. So what if it's the only note I know? It's my note. I don't wear the mask of the hawk. I'm too tiny to have caused this much stir. Too anonymous, and yet I find no peace. Even with my internal working, even my internal workings rebel, wind up, explode, drive me out into the wilderness, drive me to exhaust myself. And when sleep finally comes, I have this dream. The pictures flow back to me in black formation. Back when it started, there was color, cherry red and orange and gold of the fauves. But now, always in black. That's because I have certain knowledge that draws the color out. Black water, black air, black light, black and quiet acres. Eagle came once to talk to me. The rain was furious. I'll never let it go, she said, and picked up a tuft of something off her glacier-like frame. I can still feel your pulse in the upper atmosphere, your pulse draining me in small ways. There, all, there will be no melting of this ancient ice. Now I'm told the real ones fly alone, like I care. There's always, they're always making up new rules to make me look like a pretender. It's bad enough living without color but always scanning the horizon, the topsoil, the lower branches. I'm learning to play by my own rules, to make no excuses, to have less fear. It hasn't always been this way, but eventually you have to say, what have I got to lose? That's when I stopped. I shook loose and headed for open space without a past. Nothing to look back at. Forgetting gives us a fresh start and passage into a clean and perfect present or maybe into a stiff, cold wind where we fly with angels. We seek silence and peace and fly with angels, not really alone, with angels. That's my take on the Aesop fable. Now, Wren is a neurotic little creature. That's why I relate to her. And uh, sometimes she just doesn't pay attention. She recognizes danger. She can't land. She can't shake off fear like pond water anymore. The sweep of a terrible wingspan, a brushstroke sways bulrushes on a distant bank. This is how poison is made, by squeezing drops of terror out of Wren, draining the pulse, the tears, with a curved silver beak. 
The greedy talons may release her, but she'll never be the same. She shares two shores and two small deaths. She can no longer depend on this world. This is the obligatory Katrina poem. Near Biloxi, a shotgun house, the rain's muddy and cold, window frames slam and shatter, someone steals a boat, paddles east, a dog stranded on a roof, a wren finds a nail under the eaves, the wind shredding anything that moves drowns out all other sound. Now, two wrens on a nail dream against the storm. Behind an orange drink sign on the highway where you are, picture me as something you might have missed. A common pebble, a ground squirrel, the kind of neighbor who moves every time the rent comes due. Always picture me near the music and the dance, right where life begins in a sky of china blue and always in the vicinity of planet Earth. In certain light, nature makes her a screamer a pissed and troubled puddle of a bird who cannot locate a reflection on any surface. As the smallest wren screaming, screaming like the fire that runs through her frame flies out of the sunrise like a savage with rage so haunting her exhaustion turns to fuel. Now there's a pond close below her, always close. Something dangerous, a red-tailed hawk and coming fast like wind off Lake Michigan. Wren, lost in dreams, freezes off guard. The hawk snaps a yard rat off the clothesline not 10 feet away. Motionlessness disguises anxiety. Wren breaks out of dream time, arguing with unruly ghosts. It's not really fear, the sound of waves rolling and erasing, scrubbing, the sand making it tumble, rock and pebble to sand over and over. She neither fears nor trusts the sound. She is just a wren headed north. But she knows that sound was made by a master if ever there was such a thing. Do masters come and go like the waves, she wonders. And as for heading north, it just means leaving a place for the last time, arriving, always arriving, and for the last time, what she leaves, she leaves forever. What remains will also vanish and look the same, like leaving as you arrive. I want to thank you guys for coming out tonight in the rain, by the way, even though it may have been a short drive. Such a tiny skeleton, the structure, an island, moving on air here and there, small messages floating ashore, then a palm tree, a breathless hideaway, a place to wait for silence, a palm tree with dusk deepening, a place to learn to be brown. Wren wears herself out in the darkness of these trees. How she stays alive is nobody's business. Wrens eat most things raw, but uh, 
once in a while, they get lucky. Inside the grill of a Buick LeSabre just in from Phoenix, a cactus wren picks a rare hot meal off a cooling radiator. She looks up and watches crows from a different neighborhood shake down a red-tailed hawk and run her right out of view. Plain, brown, small, set aside by a musical scream, Wren fits in, speechless in a way, but always in private harmony, always with mad motion and hard to accompany, key of C-sharp minor. There's a wall at the entrance to the Cherry Street barn grill. One final glass brick slides in like a sound installation and mom is picking me up. I notice the brick because now the wall is complete. It's a wall you can nearly see through. Vague brown shapes move fast and look wavy on the other side. That's what I remember. That and walking out of there holding my mom's hand, she sang, you probably won't remember this moment. When we look up, there are geese like alphabet parts and numbers vibrating in the sky. Mom says, geese can change everything. They sing in horn keys. How did she know that was just what I was thinking? Nearly any bird will avoid a tree lit by torches. The fear of human rituals deeply woven. If Wren watches anything too long, she's afraid to look away. Sometimes she can see clear through to stone and silt. Engaged in gazing at nothing, she spots something red by the river. Something red could distract her, make her change direction. She'd rather gaze at nothing, the thin line that divides the invisible from the non-existent. The Wrens turned out to be kind of an alter ego for me. And uh, I had to go in for radiation and, uh, a couple of years ago, and it all came out well. But uh, the night before I went in, this poem flies out. Really, these poems seem to take on kind of a life of their own. As far as I'm concerned, they basically run their own show. I'm just sort of a conduit. A gray wren, foolish enough to believe in Indian summer, stares into a black and gritty wind, shakes with every gust, imagines a subtle hand on a dimmer switch in a night slowly descending. When Wren is absent, where does she go? Um, when I got married, my brother-in-law came down from Alaska and he brought what he described as a train kill uh, in, a, in an ice chest all the way from Alaska on the plane for us to barbecue. And I kept thinking about that and thinking about that. And this is what came out. The caribou won't believe it until humility no longer matters. He is undaunted by any Yukon Pacific chemin de fer wandering all jerky and loud, hauling lumber or oil through his private outback like a common pack mule working for oats. And so he stands his ground, confident and in no hurry. This smoke-spitting piece of junk metal isn't shrewd like Brother Wolf, who comes with running buddies and a plan. 
The noise, though, the howl and the rhythm does reach an impressive din. And that tiny head behind the black window, a suddenly blazing light, and everything gets huge. The recognition of possibilities crosses his mind in dead heat with his flank. 9,000 feet high in the Little Belt Mountains, when Wren watches a caribou hit by an American-made engine, Wren does nothing, can do nothing to prevent the kill. Caribou had never listened to any word from Wren. They didn't have that kind of relationship. Snowy boxcars rumble by, rumble by, clicking and clacking. Nothing ever happened. The high fever pitch of dry lightning shakes the only tree for miles. The breath of a devil wind, the ink-filled sky, some suitcase farmer trying to hit a crop waits for a train out of the panhandle where the dusk is thick, where the wind is king. Wren can't see a thing. The wheat stacked high rots in heaps. Wren blows south, then west, has a run-in with a barbed wire fence. Wren is selfless in a North Texas night. Um, this one's for my great aunt. My great aunt was um, the literary agent for Salinger as well as for Langston Hughes. And uh, a lovely woman who had a stroke when she was in her 80s, a totally language dependent person. And one of the things the stroke did was take the language away. But she was a, uh, like a guardian angel for our whole family. On the 17th floor of the flat iron building, two, two high-powered Bushnell lenses are trained on our little park. I can't imagine what the attraction might be. Anyway, when we sing like this, we are connected to all of history. The first monarch of the season will, touch a, will teach us to hit the knuckleball. And on the 17th floor of the Flatiron Building, an 89-year-old woman who no longer speaks is pressed against the glass. Now I know she was always watching over me. You can transfer to Yankee Stadium right here at Madison Square. They raise a lot of racket up there. Today we belong in the noise. How we do it on time, Jerry? Anybody got a bus to catch or anything? Miscalculating a landing in a shaft of uneasy updraft, Wren winds up too tight, breaks a beak, bangs against unforgiving rock. Wren had a lot of time to think back then. She grew fat in the olive trees while she mended. That's why she was in Jerusalem when Jesus died on Calvary. And she saw it all when a woman came out of the crowd to swab his bloody face with her veil, when a man came out of the crowd to help hoist timber, and a shadow passed over the wren. At the sixth station, she sat and wondered, as she often does, what would it be like to serve in an extreme way? What would, it, would, it, what would fuel her? Fear, rapture, guilt, grace? After two days, she saw the crows at their work, and she knew. We have never lived in a land without the wren. 
That's why we shake and tremble until the wind becomes home, becomes the sky we fly into. Now, a little version of this came out um, in 2000, and the first 30 of these poems came out then. Um, and like I told you, that I had really no control over these. They just kept they just kept coming until I had a whole another book's worth, and then Rain Dog decided to put out the Rain Notebook again, but with all the new ones in it, which more than doubled the length. And I've actually been writing them since this book came out. Now I don't seem to be able to control these little buckaroos. We are not viola da gamba, kettle drum, trumpet. We are piccolo, fife, nose flute, panpipe. We accompany thunder. We are troglodytes. Cave, hole, bra on the line, sock dwellers, primitive and deep in the pocket. We could never sleep until noon, not with so many wings moving. But what does the wind seek when it flirts with shallow water or makes magnolia leaves slap like polite applause when beauty crashes to earth? The slope and line of our horizon is perfect pitch and the explosions are always in the distance, except for the last one. We were over in Spain and uh, we got we got into North Spain, northern Spain, and Basque country, and man, things are really mysterious over there. Um, and uh, and it's been in the news, of course, but you could really feel it. There's no border patrol when you go from France into Spain, um, but boy, you are going someplace else. Something's going on in the north of Spain, and winging over the Guggenheim, I'm so incredibly brown it would help to be colorblind. Something about spring, it's a trick to nest in a building made of titanium, and the action, rendezvous, a tete-a-tete, tete, the tourists and the Basques dreaming up improvisations, scribbling on paper plates between crumbs and jam and not sure what it means. Everybody's pretending not to speak French. Below. It's as simple as it seems, and it never seems that simple. Imagining scenes, we become exactly what we are, especially at dawn, when the outlines take on detail and new heat is suggested. A man on crutches walks over cobblestones, crutches and a beret, crutches and a beret, dressed for winter. Do you see what I mean? So, um, I'm going to, I play harmonica, I play professionally, and I'm going to play one little tune to close this up because, you know, the Wren is a great singer, I am not. Uh, I have several band members in the audience who will confirm that for you. Uh, but I do play, and you know, I, I think uh, the connection, the connection, the connection between the music uh, the, you know, the Wren is very musical, and uh, they, they've even made records of Wren songs. I don't know if you are aware of how... I want to try to make you aware of how fantastic the Wren really is and how magical that bird is. But uh, I'm going to play you a song that I, I played out beyond Baroque last week called Monin, which was written by Bobby Timmons, who was in the jazz uh, messengers with Art Blakey. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I am done. Thank you. But you know, as you were told by Noel, the, um, our publisher did not get here and he has all these books. It's a small press. It truly does need your support. Um, so does this store for running these kinds of uh, uh, presentations. And so the only book that we've got of this one is the one I've just been reading for, which I can put up there. Um, don't be bashful about, say, ordering one. You'll, you'll get it within the week by mail. Uh, it was just uh, unfortunate uh, that Rain Dog didn't get here. You're going to miss out on his reading, and we don't have the books. Also, if you have any interest in the music um, and my playing, I've got a couple of these little CDs here, which I could sell you. But um, thanks so much for coming out, and I want to introduce uh, Jerry Lachlan. Or Noel, are you going to... Yeah, let's introduce Jerry Lachlan here. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for that. Gerald Lachlan is now a professor emeritus of English at Cal State Long Beach, where he taught from 1965 through 2007 and continues an occasional part-time lecturer there. Uh, he is the author of over 125 books, chapbooks, and broadsides of poetry, fiction, and criticism with over 3,000 poems, stories, articles, reviews, and interviews published in periodicals. Uh, his most recent books, Modest Aspirations, Poems and Stories from Lomax Press. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Gerald Lachlan. I shouldn't really leave these in the children's section, I guess, but <laughs> some of them anyway. Uh, 
Yeah, and, and um, right, I have the same problem as far as the books uh, about us to aspirations not all being available there. Because I was here earlier in the year at the Bukowski Festival and Alan Reda, uh, um, some of my books are up there, a couple of copies each, I think, of uh, some that came out in the last there may be a couple of copies of this, which is not by me, but about my work called Gerald Lachman, A Critical Introduction by Michael Bozinski, who is the curator of the special collections in poetry, at least at the University of Buffalo. Uh, this is Gerald Lachlan, New and Selected Poems. That's uh, from World Parade Books, and I think they may have a couple of copies of that up in front. This is... Uh, the Dodgers Retirement Party, a novella of the good old days, but it's not my, my retirement party. It was a, a bar owner's retirement party, but it is about the seven 1960s and 70s and all, and uh, the good drinking days, you know, back then. Uh, and uh, another one that just came out in uh, December is uh, The Vampires Saved Civilization, New and Selected Prose, 2000 to 2010. That's also from World Parade Books. And uh, it was going to be just Gerald Lachlan, New and Selected Prose, uh, but he wanted a catchy title. And I'd had this one rattling around in my brain, you know, uh, something the vampires saved civilization because that's the way they treat them in the media nowadays. I mean, on, on TV and everything, they're wonderful people. You know, they're the best citizens. They run for office. They reform the community. Uh, you know, they're, they're really upstanding citizens, it seems. Now, the only, the only person I ever knew who thought she was a vampire was not a very nice person, actually. Uh, uh, so I've never recommended vampirism, you know, to anyone. But I did like the title, so we called it The Vampire Saves Civilization. And, and so far, no one, I guess, it's, uh, some of these are on Amazon.com too. Uh, so far as, I, far as I know, no one has returned it uh, because there are no vampires in the book whatsoever, except just the title. They're in, they're in there, but I thought I'd mention those. Since some of those, I think, are up in that corner there where they have the small press uh, publications available. <coughs> and this one was supposed to be for the Lummox reading, Modest Aspirations. Uh, we have a kind of evolutionary <laughs> cover there of the apes uh, evolving. Uh, they don't seem to have gone very far on the cover, and uh, but maybe that's as far as we've gotten. I'm not. I'm not sure. Very possibly, judging from the poems, it probably is. I think, but you can make your own decision about that. And oh, and it's with uh, it's new poems by Gerald Lockett, but it's also short stories by Beth Wilson, who is a young short story writer in Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, Norman, around there. Very good. I met her once or twice at readings that I gave in the Oklahoma City area, and she, uh, uh, although a rather shy person ordinarily, came up to me and, and said, "I want to be a writer and a very good, the best writer possible. I'm serious about it. I want you to tell me how to." Well, I could tell her all those things. Things, but uh, but I've tried to uh, get some exposure for her work, especially in this uh, uh, selection of seven of her stories in the uh, at the end of this book, and they're very good. So uh, okay, but the poems, good and bad. I don't understand why guys worry about whether they are ranked good or bad in bed by the ladies who presume to adjudicate such performances. After all, the very fact that they're talking about you indicates something is commanding their sexual interest. 
Furthermore, if any woman ever claimed that I were less than excellent in bed, I'd know it must be her fault. Not only because, as the Terpsichorean proverb observes, it takes a minimum of two to tango, but definitively, because I can testify from personal experience that I have always been sensational, even when in bed only with myself. I've never had any complaints from myself. I think this book is trying to tell me that I probably shouldn't read this, this next one. It seems to be cloaking in modesty, the, uh, the next one, but no, maybe it's a little farther along. Yeah, uh, sometimes I tell myself I shouldn't read it, but I look around, everybody seems to be of over 18 here, and also uh, advanced medical directive, which we all should have, we know these days. If I should ever collapse in public, my fervent wish is that mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation be administered only by the most beautiful woman or women in the vicinity. <laughs> the activity should continue for at least an hour after the last vital sign has seemingly expired. Even at that point, all hope should not be abandoned there. But the strategy should be shifted from mouth to mouth to mouth to penis. Come to think of it, in the spirit of preventative medicine, why don't we just get started right now? I won't put this book back with the children's section there, I guess. Although who knows nowadays, you know. I write a lot of poems uh, with uh, paintings as a starting point. And uh, this is one of them by Boucher. Venus and Mercury instructing Cupid, 1738. What they seem to be instructing him in are the secondary erogenous zones. In this case, a spot in the soft flesh of the inner forearm just above the pearl bracelet. I assume they will move upward and around to the even softer flesh of the upper arm, the upper thigh, the neck and ear lobe. Kisses not quite on the mouth. The individual attention to the toes, the teasing to erection of the nipples, tickling of the anus. And if she has a belly, rather than pretending to ignore it, I hope they will clutch it, knead it, sink their faces into it, beg it, privilege it, tug her golden locks, back to the nape of her neck, massage her eyes, her temples, inflame her flesh from follicles to the soles of her feet, make her cry out to be taken. It always turns me on anyway when I read it. I don't know. But my finest moment. I'm shopping at my youngest daughter's favorite jewelry store, Luna in Belmont Shore, for her 30th birthday, a little something extra, a daddy gift in addition to what my wife and I will splurge on together. I'm attired as usual like a homeless guy. In front of the display case, a chic sales girl joins me. 
What is your price range, sir? And for once in my life, just this once in my life, I allow myself the arrogance of answering quietly. I don't see anything that's not within it. And when she finally finds me something not entirely unworthy of my beautiful, beloved child, I purchase it without inquiring the price or glancing at the tag. Uh, this one's a, a little uh, different, a little less smart-assy than some of the others, but a blossoming. On Easter Sunday morning on my serious car radio, I heard a saxophonist playing Blossom, and I knew that Sonny Rollins had to be the man. No one else pours every breath of every extended riff of every dance of every strophe into the molecular complexity of life itself, including its response to the antistrophe of death. Losing ourselves in such resurrection requiems, we know that death does not succeed in cheating us of life. But Blake and Rollins, all of the anointed, intuited that eternity and every instant are inseparable. Time is the greatest lie and loss the worst illusion. The grave, the funeral pyre, decomposition, all are movements of a single symphony. Someone strode out of that sepulcher. He was smiling and his wounds were healed. He was singing and he even felt that he might be allowed a little swagger. There was laughter in his leap. The longer Sonny lives, the more of us he lives on in, and the more he sounds like the sun. This is one that Rain Dog published many years ago in a, uh, the, what the original little red books looked like this. They were little red books, you know. They're very nice looking now, but they aren't little. Uh, this is called the Iceberg Theory, and it's been a, quite a few times on Garrison Keeley's program, and uh, you know, as you know, the uh, um, Writer's Almanac. And I always get emails from people after it does. The Iceberg Theory. All the food critics hate iceberg lettuce. You'd think romaine was descended from Orpheus's laurel wreath. You'd think raw spinach had all the nutritional benefits attributed to it by Popeye. Not to mention the aesthetic subtleties worthy of Verlaine and W.C. They'll even salivate over chopped red cabbage just to disparage poor old Mr. Iceberg Lettuce. I guess the problem is it's just too common for them. It doesn't matter that it tastes good, has a satisfying crunchy texture, holds its freshness, and has crevices for the dressing, whereas the darker, leafier varieties are often bitter, gritty, and flat. It just isn't different enough, and it's too damn American. Of course a critic has to criticize. A critic has to have something to say. Perhaps that's why literary critics purport to find interesting so much contemporary poetry that just bores the shit out of me. At any rate, I really enjoy a salad with plenty of chunky iceberg lettuce, the more the merrier, drenched in an Italian or Roquefort dressing. And the poems I enjoy are those I don't have to pretend that I'm enjoying. Okay, mix in a few things here, including, I think, I think I need, you know, I, 
I need to toss in in these things a little bit of uh, song and dance, you know, because nobody's ever going to ask me to. And so once I'm up here and I have a hold of this, you know, I toss in a little song and dance to try and reclaim the things I didn't get to do in younger life when I tried out in Catholic school for the choir and they didn't even let me in that. That they let everybody in that. You know, all you had to do was go to confession the day before, and I thought they'd let you sing. But, uh, okay, because of the time of year, we'll try a little bit of My Funny Valentine. There have been great versions, of course, by Chet Baker and Miles Davis, Shirley Horn, Frank Sinatra. <coughs> this won't be one of those great versions. <laughs> But it might be memorable for all the wrong reasons. <clears throat> My funny Valentine, sweet comic Valentine, you make me smile in my heart. Your looks are laughable, unphotographable. Yet you're my favorite work of art Is your figure less than Greek? Is your mouth a little weak? When you open it to speak are you smart? Well, don't change a hair for me. Not if you care for me. Stay, little Valentine, stay. Days, Valentine's Day. All right. Oh, look what I just came upon in here. You wanted Johnny Ray? That was the first one I ever did of these things. Little Johnny Ray. I do want to do one other. I want to have time to do a. I'll tell you what, I'll do Johnny Ray at the end. I want to try this other one, which I may really screw up, just because we're in the vicinity. I haven't done this in a long time. In the bar, we used to get together and near the end of the hours and be pretty drunk and singing in the, in the middle of the aisle, things like, you know, is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friend, we'll just keep dancing, etc. you know, or uh, gotta get off, gotta get off of this merry-go-round, and oh, or the sum, uh, of course, fever, you got fever, fever in the morning, fever all through the night, fever! 
Peggy Lee, you know, a bunch of them that we knew, you know, kind of like a glee club. Uh, but then at the end, you know, our, oh, and maybe Frank Sinatra is my way. For what is a man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has not. I don't know the rest of the lyrics, though, so don't know the lyrics of anything. That's why I have these here. But, uh, but because of the vicinity we're in, we would, we would end up with this one. Because Richard Harris made this one famous, but he didn't, he didn't go for the high note in it. And I'm not sure I will either, but I used to. I used to go for the high note in this, and we'll, we'll see. I may drop down an octave, or I may, like him, just drop out of it altogether and let the band play on, except you've got to get the harmonic out real quick for that high note, I think, in that case, if you hear me faltering too bad. But I never used to throw in either the beautiful interlude in it, so let's uh, let's see if we can get that in there too. You know, it's uh, it was a song by Jimmy Webb, who is a a very wonderful songwriter who wrote. For this song, he wrote some of the stupidest lyrics in the history of songwriting, but not in the interlude. The interlude is very pretty, you know? There will be another song for me, for I will sing it. There will be another dream for me, someone will bring it. I will drink the wine while it is warm and never let you catch me looking at the sun. And after all the loves of my life, after all the loves of my life, I'll be thinking of you and wondering why ba ba dum bum 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 ba ba dum bum 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 MacArthur's Park is melting in the dark all that sweet dream icing flowing down someone let the cake out in the rain now I think that I can't take it for it took so long to bake it and I'll never have that recipe again. Oh no. Oh, oh. she knows I can't hit that note. Oh, oh. oh, 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 oh. no. Okay, by, uh, by popular demand of one person and one, I don't have to get down on my hands and knees to sing. Uh, you know, the, uh, uh, well, it's self-explanatory. And th then I'll toss in a little bit of dancing if you will stay for that, but just one, one piece, one poem. I never liked Elvis Presley, nor was he even the harbinger of rock and roll, not to my life at least. Johnny Ray was the first rock singer I ever heard. He came and went quickly, a deaf but far from mute purveyor of two hit 40, 45s with two hits per side. The first to hit the charts, and he remained there throughout the early 50s, was entitled Simply Cry. Cry gave liberation to my hitherto inhibited wrigglings and grimaces and dissonances. I sang it all the time in my head and in the shower, and even in the world of ears if I was near a jukebox or record player to sing along with. 
I even in those early days of television dreamed of singing it on the Morton Nussbaum amateur talent show in Rochester, New York called You Can Be a Star. I figured once I had won the first prize, the fifth grade girls would have to notice me. The horrible thing is I actually managed to convince my mother and aunt to drive me to the open audition on a dreary Tuesday night. I must have known even as I waited in the chilly corridor outside the insulated soundstage that this was not going to be quite the same as singing in the shower. But it was too late to run for cover. When they led me to the microphone and shut the door of the studio behind me, the accompanist said, what key, kid? And I gulped, how many are there? <laughs> so he shook his head and started in on one that he must have known was way too high for me. I began to make sounds like a strangling alley cat, a lovesick adolescent reindeer, a castrato with one nut left dangling. <laughs> Morton Nussbaum's voice came over the loudspeaker. That's enough, kid. <laughs> then he came down and kindly explained, it's an amateur hour, kid, but it ain't that amateur. <laughs> well, I should have learned my lesson. And for 45 years, 50, 55, etc., I did. But at least tonight, I wanted that damn accompanist to betray me. If your heart aches, seem to hang around a too long, and your balloons keep keep a getting bluer with each song. Well, just. Remember, sunshine can be found behind a cloudy sky. So let your hair down and go ride a baby and cry. But don't bump. Bump. Okay. By the way, uh, Todd Fox, who's in the back there, has filmed many of these readings that I've given and has uh, done a tremendous research job with all of my books, of, uh, obtaining all of them, purchasing them, uh, and some are very expensive, the early ones that were very limited editions, and has put up a, uh, an additional website for me. There has been one for the last few years that Kevin Patrick Lee of Aortic Books put up called www.geraldlachlan.com. This is www.geraldlachlan.org. And he has all the book covers there, which you can get in. They're beautifully done, you know, I mean, very artistic things, very colorful in the, uh, you know, uh, and by clicking twice, you get the full picture of them and all. If you hit on them, you'll get the bibliographical information, which is in Gerald Lachlan, uh, uh, a critical study by Michael Bozinski. 
if uh, uh, they, he has videotapes of things like this, me making a fool out of myself, which are humorous at least, uh, uh, and uh, and plans more of those, believe it or not, if you would like to assassinate him before he gets out of here tonight, you know. But uh, I, I love it what he's done, and he's uh, people have just praised it very highly to me what he has done with that website and what he continues to do with it. He just unveiled it last week. Now. Oh, there's one little one in here before that, I guess. Uh, I'd given up on being president, and now I guess I can also forget about being first lady. We're discussing politics at the highest level, and I say something about Barbara Bush, and she says, Barbara Bush is nice. And I say, when you're that ugly, you'd better be nice. And she says, you aren't. <laughs> was that funny? Huh? Okay, tap dancing lessons. Back in the second grade, my mother had a brainstorm. She would sturdy up my spindly legs with dancing lessons at Marge Miller's studio. I had my cho choice of tap or ballet, and instinctively I chose tap. I quit dancing two years later so as not to miss the Notre Dame football broadcasts. Just as years after that, I was to quit the Boy Scouts to watch I Love Lucy. The funny thing is, my mother's crazy idea worked. It worked so well that for years I moved around with the shape of a wigwam, a sort of Winnebago teepee. Picture if you can a six-foot dwarf. Only years of lifting weights and drinking beer gave me any semblance of an upper body. And even that, like a glacier succumbing to the centuries, is sloping badly towards the equatorial belt. Still, I was better at it than you might imagine. Mrs. Miller once informed my mother that I was her, quote, little Fred Astaire. And although, and even now at parties, I'm apt to break into my shuffle off to Buffalo routine. Okay, that's the one if you're in Rochester, New York, you know that you leave the stage, you're on bump it up, ba dum, bump it up, ba dum, bump it up, ba dum, bump it up, ba dum. And as I say in Rochester, you just go right on down the New York State Thruway all the way to Buffalo. And that's why they called it the step, the shuffle off to Buffalo routine, because of my dancing on the thruway uh, to Buffalo. Uh, I'm sure you believe that. <laughs> I have two other steps in my repertoire. The bell step, although I barely leave the floor now, and the old standby stamp shuffle vault change. And in, ad in advance of those, I should admit that the, the Cossack squat is just a memory. That's the one where you're, you know, doing the Hungarian Rhapsody and all. We're not going to attempt that one tonight. No more. That one is buried. But the stamp shuffle vault change, basic time step. Do that interminably. And I'm sure it is already interminably that I have done it. The, the bell step, however, you never know when you're making your last bell step. And this is no laughing matter whatsoever. The last bell step. And you have to watch out chords and things, you know. All you can do is get up in the morning, the morning of the reading, get up early, 
eat very lightly, clean out your pockets, you know, jettison everything you can, keys and stuff, re reduce your flight load. Take your Motrin, don't forget your Motrin. Take some Advil too, take all of that. Kill your liver, but the bell step won't get you. Okay, show up for the reading. Look around, whether, wonder whether the audience is large enough to see your demise. <laughs> Take a deep breath. God. Little prayer, I almost forgot the little prayer. That's it. That's all. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks very much. I'll get some more books. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.